Welcome, Investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. So working with Dr. Green, we he went through doing various kinds of things to extract the DNA. And then, of course, we had to figure out a way of creating a file that would mimic the files that are created when places like Ancestry and 23andMe and Family Tree DNA, they use chip technology. They have what they call a SNP chip. So a SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism, which is a mutation in the DNA sequence. And so they have 700 to 800,000 SNPs on these chips that they use to create the profile that is used um, that people do for family history research. So um, what Dr. Green had to do is he's got all these little tiny fragments of DNA. He has to put them all back together again. So he uses what's called whole genome sequencing to create then the original genomic DNA. And then he uses an algorithm to go in and actually then pull out the SNP information for the SNPs that would be on the chip if you were using a chip. So it took a little bit of work to, to get this going. I think it took us probably about a year and a half to, to really get the, the whole thing working. What we had going for us, of course, is we had, for the Bearbrook people, we had a woman and what we assumed were probably her daughters. Mm-hmm. There had been mitochondrial DNA testing done on, on all of them, showing that they were mitochondrially related, meaning that they were related through their maternal line. Um, and we, of course, also had Rasmussen and his daughter. So we've got two sets of parent-child groups, and th- they have a very specific amount of matching DNA. The unit that is used is the centimorgan. So a parent-child match is about 3,500 centimorgans. So what we were looking for then is when we pulled out the DNA from the adult female and her daughters and then Rasmussen and his daughter, we would expect to see that amount of matching DNA between them. It took us a few tries. I think we went through at least three or four iterations before we actually got that kind of matching DNA. And then once we did, then, you know, we could then proceed with actually identifying who people were. So this was just really exciting because I had really thought I had reached a dead end. Uh, how close are you to identifying, if you can say, victim number four? So victim number four is kind of an interesting scenario. Part of the information that you use when you're doing this kind of analysis is a big piece of, of this, which is really huge in solving these cases, is geography. For Rasmussen, we're really not real clear where he was. There is some indication, well, we know that he was born in Colorado and that he went to high school in Arizona. We also know from some of his criminal activities that he was in Texas at various times, and of course we know he was in California. There is some indication that around the time that this little girl would have been born, he may have been living in Texas. He had communicated to somebody that he was working on the oil rigs. The woman who was the mother we believe is probably from Pearl River County in Mississippi. So oh, we know wow, that we're looking, yeah, so we know that we've got the connection to Pearl River, Mississippi, and there were apparently a large number of men who actually went from Pearl River 
to Texas to work on the oil rigs because the economy was not real good. There were not a lot of good jobs in Pearl River. So we're, we've sort of got the, the geography down at least that far. We don't have very good matches. The biggest matches, so I said a parent-child match is 3,500 centimorgans. The closest match that we have in this case, and this has been for a while, is 74 centimorgans. So we're talking about somebody who's maybe a third or a fourth cousin. We're getting closer. We were able to get the mother of that 74 centimorgan match to test, and we got some very interesting results. What it showed us was that actually her daughter, who's our, who was our biggest match, is actually mat- matching two ways. And so she's actually related to our remaining little girl, both on her maternal side and her paternal side. So what that's doing, of course, is diluting out how closely she's related. So we, you know, we we thought we were pushing it to say she was a third or a fourth cousin. She's probably more like a fifth cousin. Wow. In a couple of different ways, but it but having the double match, we're now able then to to focus on people who can only be matching through this double connection. So we're hoping that we're, we're going to be able to make some progress now that we've got that. And we only just got that recently because, of course, as the way these things go, our biggest match was somebody who was an adoptee. And so we had, had to get information on who her birth parents were, and then we were able to get, finally, a copy of this person's original birth certificate. She was actually uh, born and adopted in Louisiana, and we were finally able to get that original birth certificate. So that's really helped us. We then had the name of the mother. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's been a not been an easy trail, I'll put it that way. I have a person to recommend, uh, Ellen Leach. She runs Mississippi Missing and Unidentified Persons. So she's the Rebecca Heath of Mississippi. And we've um, she actually was on Hulu recently for one of those type cases, but I'll bet you because she has that same doggedness to pursue this sort of stuff. And she has her own website, MMUP. Is the, uh, I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards, but she may know or she may have this memorized already, like who's missing from the area. That could be the next linchpin. By the way, I, I take a moment to say, give a nod to Rebecca for her work she did on this thing. I know it couldn't have been done without that when that Rasmussen name, name jumped out at you. Right. Well, and also there was no DNA. To, so even if she had come up with stuff without the hair, there was no way to have confirmed it because there was no DNA to compare. They actually started out doing that. They got some New Hampshire got samples from various relatives and the, the DNA was no good. And so until we were able to get the hair going, there was no way to confirm it. Wow. Yeah, that's um, amazing. Yeah. Do hey, you want me to jump back to the chart? Pick up again there, Jared? Yeah. I just have a quick question here for Barbara. That It's interesting to me, the parallels between you know, being in Salt Lake, genealogy here is just massive. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is where Ancestry.com started. And the LDS Church has got some of the largest archives in the world. So can you explain to our listeners and, and viewers really kind of the parallels between using genealogy as um, just tracking back families, but then also kind of comparing it in a forensic sense in order to track down uh, potential suspects as well as potential victims or, or obvious victims. So for IgG, we're, we're actually using all the same techniques that you would do if you're doing just traditional family history research. All we're doing is we, we're adding in there another piece of information 
which can be used either to confirm or repute the information that you have. I would guess that a fairly high percentage of people who have been doing a lot of regular family history research and then incorporate DNA are going to find that they've probably got at least one line with a problem in it. That that happened to me. So my maternal grandmother's line, her maiden name was Roundtree. And it's actually a very well-known Quaker family from Yorkshire. My particular branch of the family was actually from Sunderland in the north of England, which is not far from Yorkshire. I think it's right next door. So my grandmother was the second eldest child in the family. And one of the youngest members of the family just died last year. So I contacted him through my cousins in New Zealand and asked him if he would do DNA testing. So he was a first cousin once removed to me. So he sent in his buccal swab to Family Tree DNA, and I had already contacted. There was a, a surname project for the family Roundtree because it is such a well-known family. They were very excited to be getting DNA from somebody who was from the English branch of the family. So in any event, we get the DNA, and he doesn't match anybody in the Roundtree surname project. Instead, he quite literally matches hundreds of men. This is now Y-DNA, so this is looking at just the male line. He matches with hundreds of men in Clan Irwin. Now, the Clan Irwin folks are from Dumfries in the south of Scotland. And so what, geographically, it made some sense that, yeah, they were not too far apart. You know, they're on either sides of the border, but they're all there. So I figured, well, this is okay. I'll just track down some cousins and I'll find out, you know, where, where this has happened. So there are three ways that you can get what we call an NPE or a non-paternal event. One is adoption. One is somebody's changed their name. Or, of course, the remaining one is somebody had an affair. So I tracked down a cousin in Wales. So he was, a, I think, a, something like a fourth or a fifth cousin. We shared a, a, you know, a four times great grandfather or something like that. So he tested. And so, of course, he matches with my cousin matches with all the, the guys in Clan Irwin, doesn't match anybody who's a Roundtree. So, okay, fine, we'll go a little further back. So I managed to, to track down this guy in Perth, Australia. I think we share something like a sixth times great-grandfather. Wow. This guy, this guy was a real kick because I explained to him you know, what I was trying to do. And so he goes, what's one more illegitimate person in my, in my family line? <laughs> <laughs> so he tests. Same thing, matches with both of the cousins. Matches with all the guys in Clan Irwin. What was kind of interesting, I had actually been in touch with the folks who run the Clan Irwin project. And they had actually put my cousins into a special group of men who were part of what they called their Border Reavers group. Now, the Border Reavers were, they were actually expelled from Scotland at some point and sent to Ireland. They were a pretty bad lot. They would race back and forth across the border, stealing cattle and wives and whatever else. In fact, it was kind of an interesting time. And I was now back to that time period with my cousin from Australia. And so they actually developed what they call border law. And this went on in both directions. I mean, the, the guys from England were just as bad as the guys from Scotland. They would just you know race back and forth, creating mayhem. So in any event, if somebody had stolen your cow and your, or your wife or whoever and you wanted to get them back, as long as you did this within three days with all due hue and cry, you could go racing back across the border, grab your cow or your wife, whichever one you wanted, and bring them back over the border. 
So it was kind of a, a really not a good time. These are the people who were supposed to be my Quaker relatives. I don't <laughs> they're a little little different temperament, I would say. So anyway, that's sort of a back back to where I got, and I figured I'm not going to be able to figure this out. But I at least knew now what had happened is that presumably a Roundtree wife had been impregnated by somebody from Clan Irwin. Either she'd been taken or just been raped and sent back over the border. Who knows? But that was apparently the origin of my Roundtree relatives. Wow. It was a very different story to what I, I had understood. So, And you couldn't do that without DNA. I would never have known that there was an issue with the line, but for the DNA. Oh. Um, all the rest of my li- lines seem to be okay. Is that about 1740 or so when you said six great-grandparents? Yeah, yeah, right. Back in, in the mid-1700s, yeah. Wow. Amazing. You know, I wish you had had the chance to meet my mom. She She passed away just last October, and she was just amazing at this tracking back genealogy. And... She had traced our line because I, on my grandmother's side, on my mom, on my mom's mom's side, that's purely Scottish. And we're uh, the Ferguson line. Uh, okay. Anyway, that's, she's traced us back and we have, you know, this is all documented now, but gone back, you know, she's eight or nine generations. So she was amazing at it. And it's, the knowledge that we lost when she passed away was <laughs> just incredible, but mm-hmm. trying to trying to figure everything out that she was researching. But it's just interesting that, you know, some of these people that have developed an an expertise in just tracking down genealogy lines now can be that that expertise can be put to work in solving cases. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the one piece that I, that I'm not sure we've explored enough is so now that you've established all this genealogy, how do you put that to work in helping solve cases? So at the moment, I actually only work on solving cases. So either identifying suspects in violent crimes or unidentified remains. I very occasionally will help somebody with an unknown parentage case, but not very often. So most of my time is spent actually working on cases. That's awesome. Wow. That's great. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, I think we currently have something like 50 active cases. Wow. That's, uh, That's awesome. So, Tom, why don't you go back to the graphic and pick up where we left off? Yeah. So in in the graphic itself, we have that semi-porous line between New Hampshire on the left and then California on the right. Got them, you know, geographically backwards. But I started with New Hampshire trying to reverse engineer this. And actually, like I said, about 2018, when this thing broke, we went quickly from looking at this, going back to Bear Brook and trying to figure out how it was done. And Jared, we know, you know, just looking at the MVAC and DNA and touch DNA, when this thing broke, it just changed the entire paradigm of how work was done for us. And I really wanted to know how it was done. So we started with New Hampshire and that brings me to current date. So going from New Hampshire, what happened? This didn't happen in a vacuum out in California, but for the Junsun June case, Unsun June, I think I'm saying it the right way. And that is Larry Vanter was the killer in that, who's another AKA, one of the 15 or so of Petter uh, Rams, Rasmussen, rather. And it ascribes back to him because of the match via fingerprints and then the autopsy, the DNA that's extracted from that. So we have our commonality there where he travels to California and he takes with him the little girl, the Jensen girl, 
later discovered to be Bodine and that entire line. So we have that. But somewhere along the way, I know you got notified by somebody, some clever investigators, and that seems to be the genesis of where this took place onto Golden State Killer. I've seen a couple of different apocryphal references, and of course, you've said it yourself, Barbara, but I'm wondering who exactly made that jump and how was it? And I understand absolutely it's a team effort, you know, that people bring something each time to the table, but what was the genesis? I'm I'm assuming it is coming from the... um, Bearbrook case itself. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.